appreciate her as well. But Matthew chapter 6, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. And we're talking about such a relevant topic tonight. Worry, fear, anxiety. It's even a hard thing for us to talk about. It's real. If you struggle with anxiety and you struggle with worry, you struggle with fear, depression, it is hard to talk about that because we live in a world where everybody pretends like everything's okay. It, when you ask somebody how, you're, how they're doing, fine is the answer you're probably going to get. Or when you see somebody, you try to put forward your best effort to seem happy, to seem cheerful. And so we, you look online and you see what people put online and it's always the best aspects of their life. And you look around and you think, everybody seems to be doing so much better than me. Everybody seems to be handling life so much better because I'm, I struggle with anxiety. I'm worried. I'm fearful. I got these things in my life that are bothering me. But when I look around, everybody else seems to be fine. But the reality is, Anxiety and worry are a very real part of every person's life. It's a battle for every single person. The people around you don't have it as put together as you think they do. The people around you don't have everything in life just falling right in place. They're struggling too. And you know that it's a major part of our life when you read the Bible and almost every single author of the Bible addresses the topic of anxiety and worry. You could go just about to any author, but Paul repeatedly says, don't be anxious, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on God, because he cares for you. Go read the Psalms. And what I love so much about the Psalms is how real they are to the human experience and the fact that we all struggle with worry, anxiety, and, and challenges in life. And as we're going to see tonight, Jesus addresses this subject very directly. It's so relevant to what we all experience and I just appreciate, I was talking to Pastor Dusty last night. One of my favorite things, and you've heard me say this, one of my favorite things about the Bible is how real it is when it comes to what we experience is life in this fallen world. It doesn't sugarcoat things. God knows, as the frail people that we are, that we're going to struggle with this. We're going to struggle in this area. Our faith is going to be flawed. So the Bible speaks to this very subject. I'm just going to read for us our passage, verses 25 to 35. or I'm sorry, 25 to 34, the passage we'll be reading, studying tonight. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds, feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. 
They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like none of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Part one, the first thing Jesus does, the first thing that really jumps out at us, is he gives us a command not to worry. A command not to worry. And he starts in verse 25, he says, for this reason, meaning that this command is built off of what he had just taught in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you will drink. What Jesus taught in verse 24 is that we shouldn't be slaves to money. In our world, people are slaves to money. That's the reality. Our lives, from the moment we're put into kindergarten, if you live in America, your life is built around, what are you going to do when you grow up? How how are you going to make a living? And then as you get older, your life increasingly becomes centered around a career. And the career is the thing you focus on. And you work hard because you're trying to climb the ladder. You're trying to make as much money as you can. And before you know it, you've been sucked into this system where you are a slave to money. That is simply how the world works. But Jesus says you cannot be a slave to money and a slave to God. And as followers of his... Your top loyalty, your top allegiance, your your sole duty of service is to God, not to money or not to career and not to careers. But what is it that makes people a slave to money? It's a desire for the things that money can get. It's the reality that we do live in an economic system. So if you want food, you need to have money to pay for it. If you want clothing, you need to have money to pay for it. If you want a house, you have to make money to pay for it. And so we need those things. Those are legitimate things, legitimate necessities. And we become fixated on the means of obtaining those necessities. But then it has a way of morphing because then we're not content with necessities. Then we want more. We don't want just any house. We want the biggest house. We want the nicest house. And we don't want just uh, any kind of clothing. We want the best clothing. And it so quickly sucks us in to where we find ourselves as a slave to money. But it all starts with that that question in our minds. How are we going to get the things that we need if we're not working for money, right? If we're not striving to obtain those things. 
And that's what leads Jesus to this teaching in verse 25. As followers of his, he commands us not to be consumed with worry for the necessities of life. Don't let your worry for the necessities of life become something that makes you a slave to money, that makes you a slave to the means of of obtaining those necessities. And there's three different principles. So the command Jesus gives us is not to worry. And there's three different principles that he gives us as to why we should not worry. And principle number one is that life is about more than our physical existence. That's what Jesus is saying when he says in verse 25 that life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Life is not about our physical bodies and our physical existence. And that's not to say that there isn't any importance. What we do with our bodies and the life we live in our bodies is important. What we do on this earth is important, but our bodies are to be used for the glory of God and in the service of God. The problem is that we so often, our our priority is to be serving God with our bodies, but we get our priorities mixed up, and before you know it, we're serving our bodies, right? I mean, we can enjoy food. It's okay to enjoy food, but eating parries every week is not what life is about. Or eating fancy food is not what life is about. And we can enjoy clothes. In fact, Paul says, hey, with food and clothing, we'll be content with these things. But the pleasures of fashion are a wasteful thing to live for. Jesus gives the illustrations or the examples here of food and clothing, but really we can stretch this out to almost any material thing. Life is not about any material thing that might capture your interest. We can be obsessive over cars, but do you realize how dumb of a thing cars are compared to the glory of God? Do you realize um, when you obsess over houses what a foolish thing it is to obsess over houses up against the eternity of God? The, the horizon of eternity? Anything you obsess over in this world, you can apply this illustration to, right? Golf clubs, vacations, shoes, boats, nothing that we can obtain in this physical world and in our physical existence is anything more than a vapor. Up against the horizon of eternity, it all fades away. Up against the glory of God, it all fades away. Our purposes in this physical body and our life in this physical body is to be wrapped up in serving the unending and unparalleled glory of God. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Life is about so much more than this physical existence. Matt Dodd, I don't know how many of you would be familiar with him, but at Countryside, the church that North Lake was planted from, he was a missionary in Papua New Guinea, and really fascinating. Like, uh, I remember him telling our elders when the elders would interview potential missionaries to see what they're about, whether or not it was somebody that um, they wanted to support. 
And basically, in Papua New Guinea, there are literally tribes, or there are tribes that have literally never had any contact with the outside world. And like, don't hardly know that the outside world even exists. And so he had a family. He had, I think, three kids and a wife, pretty normal family. His missionary objective was to get a helicopter, to drop him in the middle of nowhere on one of these families or one of these tribes that had no knowledge of the outside world. And to know, so that within Papua New Guinea, there's like each tribe has its own language, but then the whole island has a common kind of commercial trading language, just where they can share bare minimum worth of knowledge to like exist with one another and trade with one another and make war or peace. And so he was going to learn just that minimal amount, like that 10% common language, and get dropped into the middle of nowhere with his family and get this tribe to accept him so he could share with them the gospel and be a missionary to their tribe. I mean, that's just kind of crazy, right? I think my sibling, I think they might be um, talking about them in BBS at Countryside. Oh, what? It's a family from Papua New Guinea and their mission. Well, so we do, okay, but here's where the story changes. They get there, and like a year in, Matt develops brain cancer, and it's terminal. And so he comes back here, and he's talking to the churches over here that support him, and so Countryside did send another missionary group, but as Matt was dying, he would tell people, you know, like, my greatest need has been met. Like, I don't have any bitterness. I'm not happy about dying. I prefer to keep living with my family. He was about my age. He was young still. Well, you know, however young you consider me. But, like, he would tell you, life is not about this physical existence. My greatest need is to be reconciled to God for eternal life. And I have that in Christ. It was such an amazing testimony of exactly this first principle that Jesus is teaching us here. Life is so much bigger than this physical existence. Seems like he's more a special forces soldier than a missionary. Yeah. No, he really, he really was. And uh, you know, his amazing work. And like Joy point, pointed out, he passed away. Um, and uh, another, but another group was able to go, another family was able to go and continue on to work. And I think that's who they're highlighting in BBS this week at Countryside. But our priority in this life is to give God the glory. And what Matt realized and what Jesus would have us realize is that we can do that even when everything in this physical life is stripped away from us. Because God's purpose for you is to glorify him. And if that's his purpose for you, nothing can stop that purpose. Whatever you need to fulfill that, he promises to provide. Think about what Jesus said. If you abide in me, if my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. That's what God calls us to. And we'll get back to that here at the end of chapter 6. But God has provided for us his son, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit and his word, his truth, so that we have all we need to fulfill whatever pr purpose he has for us in this physical life.
And that's what life is about. Stop obsessing over the vain things of this world. Sage. Um, God giving you whatever you need to complete, you know, giving him glory. The good thing about it is you can't abuse that power because he's, you can't just say, hey, give me a Lamborghini and, you know, that'll help me. No, yeah, absolutely. You can't lose it. Stop obsessing over the material, vain things of this world. But there's a second principle provided by Jesus here as to why we shouldn't need to worry about our physical necessities in life. Number one, the first principle is life is more than our physical existence. The second principle he gives here is God is a good and loving father. Uh, And I like this principle because it shows just how down to earth Jesus is um, and how much he speaks to our needs. Because there's plenty of people, I think in our circumstance or in my circumstance, the culture a lot of us live in, we can worry about do we have a nice enough house or do we have nice enough clothing or do we get to eat nice enough food? Sadly, That's what we can worry about. But the reality for much of human existence and for many people is like, hey, Jesus, I'm not worried about jet skis or having an exercise room in my house. Like, I'm legitimately worried about having food to feed my kids and being able to give them shelter. For many people, that is a legitimate need. And Speaking from a human perspective, that's a much more reasonable worry. Uh, when we get anxious about, is our, is our car nice enough? That's pretty evidently foolish, right? But when somebody starts worrying about, do I have food for my children? That's a pretty legitimate worry, right? We would step back and say, yes, I understand how you would be anxious about that. But Jesus says, don't even worry about that. Your heavenly father is God. God is your heavenly father, perfectly loving, perfectly in control, perfectly watching over all the details of your life. He loves you dearly. The second principle here is God is a good and loving father. And Jesus gives two illustrations here from the world around us, two illustrations just showing God's goodness. The first is the birds of the air. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? People, especially when you get career-oriented, people will work themselves almost literally to death. Like, you want to get advanced in your career? It's like you're working 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. People will work themselves almost to death for the things of this world, for temporary things, the vanity of the things of this world. But Jesus says, look at the birds. Sure, they go find food. Like the birds don't just sit there and like wait for like God to drop a worm in their mouth, right? Like, the, the bird will go find food, but God provides for them. And God gives them what they need. They simply do what God designed them to do. And God provides 
for their needs. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Are you not worth much more than birds? Were birds created in God's image? No. You were. Birds weren't. But you were created in God's image. Did Jesus die for the salvation of the birds? No. But did Jesus take God's wrath for your salvation? Does the Bible ever call the birds the children of God? But what does the Bible call you in Christ? Adopted. Adopted children. If God provides for the birds, do you think he's going to provide for you? Absolutely. No question about it. The second illustration, God's care for the earth. He says in verse 28, And why are you worried about the clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself, himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus points to the beauties of the earth. And the specific illustration he gives here is wildflowers. So my wife, Jenna, she has a ranch. And if you go to her ranch at the right time of year, like I'm not a nature person. It's really hard for me to be like moved by nature. I like being inside. But if you could, even for me, who's not into nature, if you go to her ranch, like say May, late April, early May, like the wildflowers are absolutely incredible, insane. It's like they are blanketing the place. And it is just all sorts of colors, too. It's like bright, bright purples, like bright reds, whites, blues. It looks really fake. It's just absolutely incredible. And nobody planted those. Like, nobody went around and arranged those. Nobody set that up except for God. They're God's way of showing his glory and his splendor in creation. Not even the greatest human achievements compare to what God demonstrates in nature, to the glory that he shows in nature. Jesus says, look at Solomon. Solomon was one of the wealthiest. In fact, for his, the audience of Christ here would probably be the wealthiest and most powerful, wisest human that they would know of in all of history. And in verse 29... Jesus says not even Solomon was able to put together or create things that could compare to the glory of what God is able to do. Think about our own time. Apparently, if you have many billions of dollars today, you have to fling yourself into space. It's just what you got to do. And, and uh, I saw for like, like 30 million, you can purchase a ticket. Like, if I had 30 million, there's a few people I wouldn't mind launching into space. I thought about that. <laughs> like, hey, here's your ticket, dude. But, uh, no, just kidding. But, but um, think about it. Like, the, the most powerful men on the planet right now are sp spending just 
unimaginable amounts of money to just touch the edge of God's creation, right? Just like to barely go spend a few seconds at the edge of space. Forget about the incredible glories that God's created beyond that, just far beyond anything we could imagine. Um, Nothing that humans create comes anywhere close to the glory of God's creation and just to the glory that he demonstrates of himself and God's and his creation. And if God pours this much care and this much attention into his temporary creation, because he's going to burn this, right? Like at some point, God's going to destroy this, eliminate it, and create a new heavens, a new earth. Or to Jesus' point, um, if God so clothes the um, grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. Uh, again, back to Jenna's ranch. Like, if you want to see these flowers, you got to land it perfect because it's like they're not there, not there, not there. Then they're like there for a couple of weeks and then they're gone. And and so it, these things are just they're they're fleeting. And Jesus says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? What what in creation was created in God's image? I'll go back to the same point I was making a second ago. What what part of creation was made in God's image? Me. You, man. Flowers? No. The planets, as amazing as they are and as really incomprehensible as they are, not created in God's image. The any amazing animal you can think of, not created in God's image. We are his chosen and redeemed people. Of all creation, we are the ones that he most placed his love on. Nothing else can compare. Christ died for us. And as amazing as the flowers are, and as much unimaginable wisdom and power God put in to creating the flowers of the field, those things are gone in a few weeks. You are eternal. You are eternally chosen to be his son. Christ died for us. So when you see the, when you see the power of God demonstrating creation, when you see just the wisdom of God and the really the investment of God in creation, think about what does that mean for you? What does that mean for what God is able to do in your life and how he's able to take care of you and provide for anything you could need? I mean, what kind of power does it take to create the oceans and everything that's in them? We can't imagine it. Yet that is the power that works in your life. When you're promised to be sanctified in Christ and conformed to the image of Christ, it's the same power that sanctifies and changes you, that does the amazing things that science discovers and studies. He sent his son 
to die for us and to take the wrath for our sins. If he was willing to send his son, do you think he's not willing to also provide for your needs and to provide what you need in this life? He did the bigger thing. Do you not think he's also going to do the smaller thing? It's not difficult at all for God to provide what we need. Principle one. So Jesus gives us the command not to worry. The first principle is it's because life is about more than our physical existence. The second principle is because God is a good and loving father. And the third principle behind Jesus' command not to worry is because it's pointless. It's pointless. Look at verse 27. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer that Jesus is driving you to is nobody. Nobody can add any time to their life by worrying about it. Who is in control of the amount of time that we get to spend on this earth? God. God, do you know if you'll be alive tomorrow, in 10 years, in 20 years, in 90 years? No, you don't. And of course, you can take care of yourself and you can do the practical things that, you know, you you take your fish oil pill or whatever. But how many people do all the health things perfectly, yet they die? They die from some unforeseen accident or just some disease. Or how many rich and powerful people throughout history, they had the ability to buy the best stocks. Like Steve Jobs, right? Like you think Steve Jobs, the guy who really got Apple going? Uh, Even the richest people get killed. Sometimes because of assassinations, people with the money. That's true. Yes, yeah. But yeah, you think of Steve Jobs, like the Apple founder, CEO who died of cancer, like, you know he had access to any kind of medical technology on this planet. Anything, in any amount of it. Like, he was one of the wealthiest people on this planet, one of the smartest people on this planet, yet when God decides that it's our time to go, it is simply our time to go. Worry and anxiety, they can destroy you, they can... They can tear you up. They can give you all sorts of health problems. They can zap the joy out of your life. They can drag you down. Worry and anxiety can do almost anything except for actually extend your life or take care of your problems. Used to. Now it's like money just goes away as soon as it comes. Used to. It was backed by a gold standard, print a trillion dollar bills, Buy a trillion dollars in gold. Now it's whatever we say it is. Whatever you say it is. Yeah. So it can go away. Yeah, he's getting into some deep monetary policy there. Yeah. We had had a discussion during like a reunion, and it turned into Bitcoin and stuff. Bitcoin, yeah. Long conversation. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing, but. Jesus definitely, when it comes to anxiety and worry here, makes the point it doesn't accomplish anything. It robs you of joy. It can diminish the quality of your life. 
It does not add to it. So Jesus gives the command not to worry, and he builds three principles off of this. Life is about more than our physical existence. God is a good and loving father, and it is pointless. It doesn't accomplish anything. But what do we always talk about when it comes to sin, the things that God commands us to turn away from? We always talk about how the biblical process for repentance and change is putting off sin and putting on righteousness. It's always, go back to Ephesians 4, the guy who steals needs to stop stealing. Instead, that's the sin he needs to put off, and the sin he need, or the righteousness he needs to put on is working hard and actually becoming a generous person. Or um, the, the person who speaks falsehood is to stop being a liar and to start speaking truth. It's always the pattern that the Bible gives us. It always calls us from sin into something else, to righteousness, to how God would have us live. And Jesus does exactly that in this passage. He's calling us uh, to turn away from worry, to turn away from being absorbed in concern for the material things of this world. And so if the material things of this world are not to be our obsession, what is to be our obsession? Spiritual things of this world. Spirit, not this world. No, I mean, spiritual things, right? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. The bottom line is, like, as humans, we're going to be obsessed with something. That's just kind of how the human mind works. It's got to be occupied and focused in on something. That, and, and so if it's not going to follow the pattern of this world, because remember, you just look around, it's very obvious that the world is obsessed with material possessions and material wealth. But Jesus gives a second command, along with the command not to worry, not to be obsessed with those things. He gives us the command to be consumed with living for God. Be consumed with living for God. So pick it up again in verse 31. Jesus says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The first point that Jesus makes here is that the obsession with material needs of this world is characteristic of what he calls the Gentiles. You'll remember, we talked about this before in the New Testament. Well, Parker, my four-year-old the other day said, Dad, Mr. Mejia was saying we're either Jews or reptiles. So I'm like, no, no, no. That is not what Mr. Mejia has been teaching on Sunday morning. He said Jews or reptiles. Jews or Gentiles, right? So like sometimes... The it's like an ethnic term or racial term. Like you got your Jewish ethnic people, and then you got everybody else, the Gentiles. So like we are all Gentiles, and sometimes the Bible just speaks is speaking in that way. Other times, though, as Jesus is doing here, the Jews were known as God's people. They were God's chosen people, and Gentiles are those who are outside of God's kingdom. They're not citizens of God's kingdom. And so in our 
modern vernacular or in our church vernacular, you could say believers and unbelievers. Jews being believers, unbelievers being Gentiles. Believers being those who are citizens of God's kingdom, who are members of God's people, and unbelievers being those who are, they have not come to faith in Christ, and therefore they are still subject to God's wrath. They are not his children. They're outside of his kingdom. And so you could reread this here saying, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for unbelievers eagerly seek all these things. For it's characteristic of those who are not children of God to be obsessed with the things of this world and to be obsessed with, um, with their physical needs. And then the second point Jesus makes, which is again, something we've already talked about. He says, but your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Again, the, there's no surprises with God. God made you. Do you not think he realizes that you need food and clothing? Do you not think that he realizes that you need to be able to take care of your family? One of my favorite verses in college was when Paul says, who's he say it to? Is it Timothy or the Thessalonians? I want to say it's to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5. Paul says, if somebody doesn't take care of the members of their own household, they're worse than an unbeliever. Now that, because when I was your age, I thought, well, I'll never be able to live. Like, it's way too expensive out there. There's no way I'm going to be able to have a job, make all this money, like take care of the family. It just seemed like such a daunting, overwhelming thing. And then as I got to college, it's like, well, that reality is getting closer and scarier. And then I came across that verse and I was like, wait a second. If God commands me to provide for the physical needs of my family, if that's a... Uh, act of obedience he wants me to pursue he's going to provide the means for that so i was very liberated by that verse i was like wait a second if god commands it that means he's going to make this possible and 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 i go back to the words of christ here god knows that you need these things there's no surprises for god Uh, think back to um the jesus teaching us about prayer He's like, you don't need to sit there and like just do some vain repetition for God. Like God knows what you need before you even ask him. In fact, God knows what you need even more than you know what you need. I can't think of how many times in my life, and as you get older, you'll see this pattern also where you've wanted something. Maybe you've even prayed for it and you were convinced it was a good thing and God didn't give it to you. And then like, a year, two, three down the road, you look back and you're like, God absolutely knew that what I wanted was not the best thing for me. Um, God knows what you need. And so he simplifies life for us. This is one of my favorite verses coming up because it simplifies life. We like to make life very complicated. You know, what's God's will for my life? Like this this college? Do I want to go to this college or not? What's God's will for me? You're like, do I need to take this job or not? What's God's will for me? And like, we almost treat life as this like murky, smoky mystery. And we got to like discern God's will and figure out just what decision he wants to make. But what's interesting is you go through the New Testament, every time you see the Bible talk about God's will for our lives, 
it is always very simple. It is obedience to him. Obeying the commands that he has given us, seeking to live for his glory. Because here's what we do. And this is how foolish we are so often as people. Like God has told us a lot. God has told us a whole lot about what he expects from us in life. And so often in our sinfulness, we'll be like, yeah, I don't really care. I want to go do what I want to do. I don't care what God tells me to do. This is God's will for my life. But then this big decision comes up. It's like 10% of your life. This big decision comes up like, oh, I got to decide what college to go to. Now I really want to know God's will. And like, it's like, wait a second. No, you've been neglecting like the 98% he makes crystal clear to you in his word. And now all of a sudden this 2%, like you think you're going to just, okay, now I want God's will for my life. And no, it doesn't work that way. It's actually the opposite. You faithfully follow God in the 98, 99% of what he clearly shows you to do in life. And then that 1% decision comes up, like, am I going to move here to this city or that city? God will guide those decisions. And if you're walking in God's wisdom, you think you're going to really just all of a sudden make a real bonehead decision on that 1%. Like, no, you're walking in the wisdom of the Lord. He, he guides you. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. Jesus said he makes life real simple in verse 33. Instead of worrying about all the things of this world, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these other details of life that we're always fretting over, don't worry about it. Instead, fret over knowing God. Fret over being obedient to him. Fret over over knowing his word. And the rest of life will fall into place. You'll make, he'll provide for you the things that you need. You'll make the wiser decisions. You'll be walking in his will. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Don't you love that? Because that's within your control. By the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit... That is within your control. There's so much of life that's outside of your control. Can you control the health issues that develop in your life? Maybe in some small ways, right? Like, don't smoke. You probably have less chance of getting cancer. You know, like, wear sunscreen. Like, yeah, you can control some things. But by and large, can you control, like, what the health of your parents? Can you control, like the finances of your family. I mean, there's just so much in life that is outside of your control. And those are the things that we get so easily swayed into worrying about. And Jesus says, no, do what is in your control. Seek first God, his kingdom, his righteousness. Wake up in the morning and make that decision. I'm going to seek God. I want to know what God has to say. I'm going to open up his word and I'm going to pray and I'm going to lay before him the things that I can foresee coming up in this day. I'm going to read his word and I'm going to look to apply it. I'm going to look to be obedient. I'm going to ask him to search my heart, show me areas of sinfulness that I can repent from. Those are all within your control, not to your glory, right? I mean, it's the power of the spirit working in you, but by God's grace, 
you can wake up every day and do his will. Paul told the Thessalonians, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. You can wake up every day and make that choice to pursue God's will for your life and your sanctification. Paul told the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I love that we worry so much about the things that are out of our control when God says, no, worry about what is in your control. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus ends here in verse 34 with kind of just a wisdom statement. (laughs) It's just a wisdom statement. Don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here's what Jesus, let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying like, kind of corny, like YOLO, like you only live once. Like he's not saying have that kind of attitude or mentality, right? He's not saying like, hey, don't worry about the future. Just do whatever you want because who cares, right? You have today. No. Again, when we read the Bible, we never read just one verse in complete isolation. Uh, Jesus Proverbs, the Bible as a whole, has much to say about wise living and about wise planning for the future and thinking about the fact, hey, there is most likely, sure, maybe God will take you today. You never know. But most likely you're waking up tomorrow, right? And like live wisely and plan wisely. Jesus isn't negating all that. What Jesus is telling us is what he's been telling us, don't live with an obsessed anxiety and worry about your future. Um, Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. You know how tomorrow takes care of itself? When you carry out verse 33, when you live in the wisdom of God and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, then there's so much less reason to worry about tomorrow. First of all, that means you're, you're going to be living wisely. And wise living tends to lead to a better life. Because so many, sin brings about death, right? Sin brings about destruction. You see it over and over again. Sin initially brought death and destruction into this world. But sin, when we live in it, continues to bring death and destruction. So if you're not seeking first God's kingdom and you're not seeking first his righteousness, your sinful living just piles up problem after problem. We have problems in life that aren't necessarily the result of sin. That's very possible. Um, Look at Job. Job is a great example of that. Um, And there's many reasons that problems can come into our life. But if I look at my own life, I have to be honest that about 9 out of 10 problems I created with sinful living. If I lived seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness, I probably wouldn't have this problem I got right now, whatever it may be, right? And so, but, but, so Jesus isn't saying just who cares about tomorrow, but what he is saying is don't, that seeking first his kingdom, his righteousness, you don't have to live with the sinful worry and anxiety for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I mean, that's just, that's just wisdom straight from Christ. Uh, focus on where God has you today. 
Focus on living to his glory where he has you today. Living in obedience to him. That is his will for your life. So as we kind of wrap it up and look to apply these, uh, these verses really, they pop out and just in so many ways apply themselves. Um, But first and foremost is, do you know Christ? Jesus is talking here so much of this based upon God being your heavenly father. Well, until you come to faith in Christ and been reconciled to God, he's not your heavenly father. Like these are the promises that God makes to his children and we become his child through faith in Christ, through the redemption that Christ offers. And so that's really the first thing that any of us needs to examine in our life is where do we stand in our relationship to God because of our faith in Christ. But once we are in Christ, the call of this passage, the call of verse 33 there is is set your eyes on the Lord. It is so hard not to, the reason it's so hard not to be distracted with the worries of this world is because they bombard us every single day, every single day. And it's so easy for our minds to be consumed with the worries of what are we going to have in the future? What do we want now? What do we not have now? And the temptation is for our minds to be obsessed in that. And Christ is just calling us away from that obsession to putting our faith and our obsession upon him. Just having our hearts and our minds saturated with the Lord. And that's what seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness is about. That's the difference between, going back to verse 24, being a slave to money and being a slave to God. Verse 33, when the first thing we see is God's kingdom, his glory, we want to glorify him with everything we do. We want to tell others about his kingdom. We want to make his greatness known. And we seek his righteousness. My prayer for all of us, because we're all going to, if you struggle with worry and anxiety, we'll join the club. That's why every single, just about, area of the Bible addresses this topic. Because it's a temptation for all of us. And it's a challenge for all of us. But the call of Christ, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you just so much for your love for us, that you don't leave us to face the harsh realities and challenges of this world alone, but we go into them with the knowledge of your truth, with the knowledge that by faith in Christ, we are your children, that you love us dearly, and that if you'll provide for us your son for our salvation, you'll provide for us everything we need to glorify you in this life. And I pray as we go out to finish our week that you would help us to do that. Help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.